Hello, New Vintage. I hope you enjoyed week one of our 40 days through the New Testament challenge. And I hope that if you haven't started yet, or maybe you fell off the wagon before you even got in it, let me encourage you to take this week and just jump in with us wherever we may be, or you can go ahead and start at uh, day one and we will join up with you along the way. This is not about uh, legalism. It's not about trying to uh, make you feel bad if you don't do it, but it is something we believe is going to bring new life to your walk with God. And so if you think that you would enjoy it and benefit from it, I hope you will jump in as soon as we can. Now, I do want to take the opportunity to point out the shirt I'm wearing. This right here is a, uh, it's a test shirt, so we'll see how it goes. It says Ritz on it because we're getting pretty close to the opening of the Ritz Theater in just a few weeks. So we've got all sorts of great things going on. You would not believe the inside of the Ritz right now. It is really, really coming together, and I hope that you will take this as an opportunity to spiritually prepare yourself for what awaits us when we're on Grand Avenue. And in the meantime, we have a lot of great things to discuss, including today's text, which is going to come from the Gospel of Mark. So if you missed last Sunday for some reason or last weekend, I hope that you will know what kind of what we're doing here is that uh, we're going to take the text that you're going to be reading, and I'll pick one of that week's texts that you will be reading through as we all journey through the 40 days through the New Testament challenge, and we'll pull it apart. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. If you have a Bible and want to go ahead and cheat a little bit, go ahead and pull that up, or you can follow along with us on the Uversion Bible app. Now, just to recap, just very briefly, the story of Jesus is quite simply the greatest story ever told. If you think about the stories that you know, that you have heard and that have become the great stories of our society, whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's Lord of the Rings, whether it's the Chronicles of Narnia, all of those stories have as their root in some way, shape, or form the story of Jesus. It is the greatest story ever told. So we get the blessing of being able to read the first four Gospels, which on the very surface could seem like they're just the same story repeated, but they're very much not. Last week, we were in the Gospel of Matthew, which is full of red letters. That's the teaching Gospel of Jesus. And it's funny because when I ask people, what, which one of the four Gospels is your favorite for people that have spent some time in all four, very few people will say, Mark. You have a lot of Matthew people. Uh, you have a lot of Luke people because they love the parables or maybe they love John and his big bad metaphors. I mean, ways of helping us understand Jesus that are just very different than you get in Mark, which is just kind of there. And a lot of people don't know what to do with Mark. It seems like it's kind of this one gospel that's just kind of plain. It's the vanilla and it's a very small cup of vanilla among the gospels. So I want to just spend some time walking you through a little bit about the Gospel of Mark before we get to Mark chapter 9, if that's okay. So, in Mark, Jesus comes across to us, he's presented to us as this miracle-working, suffering servant. So, uh, he's, I've used the term the powerful servant. That's who Jesus is. So, Mark opens very quickly, uh, right out of the gates. You're sprinting all the way through the Gospel of Mark. But Jesus begins his ministry with a miracle, casting out demons. He's the one that has the power to cast out demons. He can interpret the law in very fresh ways. He can raise people from the dead. Jesus is a miracle working, but he's also a suffering servant. Now, Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's written with a high degree of urgency that is really second to none. So, for instance, Jesus will repeatedly use this phrase, kai uthus, and immediately uh, right away, he did this. And it gives a sense of pace to describe what's happening. 
So again, in Mark, the story moves really, really fast. If the Gospel of Mark were a movie, it might be something with really, really fast music. If it was a, a musical, it might resemble, strangely enough, the musical Hamilton, at least that piece about writing like you're running out of time. That's Mark. That is the Gospel of Mark. Uh, there would be times where when we get closer to the crucifixion, it turns into the dirge of a, of a requiem. And then, of course, that kind of triumphal resurrection of Jesus and the ascension uh, would go to something might sound like the Ode to Joy or something like it. Now, Mark very succinctly unfolds a truly great life uh, among us. So here are some of those things about the Gospel of Mark for us to consider just as we go. Again, it's one of the shortest. It is the shortest gospel. It's given a sense of urgency. Everything's happening immediately. Jesus is going to do this. There aren't big pauses or gaps uh, or anything like that. Concise, if you compare the way that Mark describes an incident to the way that, say, the Gospel of Luke or something else might describe it, he is tend to be the most concise. The, he uses very uh, colorful language that, that tells the story in a very vivid way with a great economy of words. Jesus, again, is portrayed as the powerful servant of Christ today. Now, for something else that might be a, sound a little strange, but it's very important when you read Mark to understand what he, how he's trying to, to show us the living Christ, he uses what's called the historical present tense more than 150 times in the gospel. Now, what's the historic present tense? Let me explain to you, and I know you don't you, you left English class and probably are happy to have done so, but this is important, so bear with me here. The historic present tense is when a person describes something in the past using the present tense. Now, this happens all the time. If you ever turn on the news, uh, the local newscast late at night, they'll say something to the effect of, tonight, the Padres win the World Series, or something like that. They've never actually never said that, but we hope that they will someday. But if they did say it, tonight, the Padres win the World Series. Tonight, the governor has good news for Californians. Tonight, uh, COVID-19 cases continue to rise. Okay? They're using the present tense to describe something that already happened. If you know I'm a baseball fan, many of you do, if Babe Ruth never goes to the Yankees, they never win all those championships, right? That's a way of saying something using the present tense that happened a long time ago, okay? So that's how Mark is written. It's written when he describes Jesus, he's using the historic present tense. Why? Because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus isn't a relic of the past. He's present tense. Jesus is present tense. He's not something we remember from the past, like the Alamo or something like that. Jesus is right here, right now. He is a present and future Christ. So he's not past tense. Now, again, things are happening quickly, and he's trying to help us understand that the one that you and I are reading about, he is powerful, he is humble, and a servant at the same time. And as long as he's here on this earth, he is going around gunslinging for God. I mean, he is out there getting it done. And by using that particular tense, what he's saying is, this still happens. Here in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41, it says, Teacher, said John, so that's the apostle John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not, and you want to underline something, here it is. For whoever is not against us is for us. 
Whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Those who are not against us are for us. Now, most of us are going to be confronted at some point about what we're going to do with everybody else that claims to be a part of the Christian family. In Scripture, we need to understand something in no uncertain terms because it's reiterated throughout the Gospels, and that is unity. The unity of the body of Christ matters a lot to Jesus. Not a little bit. It matters a lot. This story is, if you will, a welcome rebuke to that kind of identity-exclusive way of thinking. So here you even have the apostles, and they look and they see somebody who's not part of the apostles, and he's out there healing and casting out demons. And so he's told to stop because he's not one of the chosen 12. And Jesus says, why are you stopping him? Why are you stopping him? Because he's not one of us. Now, most of us are going to deal with that question, okay? Who's in, who's out? It's John's day, the Apostle John's day to have to answer this question or have it answered for him by Jesus. Now, John's not some weird guy. He's not just a harsh legalist. I mean, he's the apostle that Jesus loved. John will write later on, beloved, let us love one another. I mean, he becomes the guy that talks about loving one another more than almost anybody else. But he misses this one. He misses this one, and that's the case often with a lot of sectarians. They don't even realize that's what they are. They don't realize that they're being exclusive. They don't realize that they're often drawing the lines a little bit closer in than they should. They don't want to damage anybody or bring shame to the name of Jesus, of course. They don't intend to damage the church's witness. Those aren't John's intentions either. So John tells an exorcist who's kind of carrying out his ministry in Jesus' name to stop. Why? Well, in 938, it says, because he wasn't one of us. So Jesus rebukes John. Okay. Well, where does that come from? Where does that feeling come from? That feeling of, you know, I can't, I just want them to stop doing what they're doing because they're not part of us. Sectarianism is kind of a strange thing, and it has two primary roots. I'm going to give you a couple that you can see rooted here in the passage. The first is pride. At its root, sectarianism is often a sin of pride. Now, it might be a simple pride that enjoys being part of a group that is a little bit more special. You may have tried to pledge the right fraternity or sorority in college, or you might have loved to be part of the exclusive country club or hold a certain position or be part of the clique in high school or whatever it was. We have this need to want to be special in that particular way. That sense of gratification um, is just not significant enough for us to continue to draw those lines inside the body of Christ. Throughout Mark chapter 9, Mark goes out of his way to point out the pride of the disciples. So even as he's giving us this beautiful, majestic picture of Jesus, at the same time, he's helping really highlight kind of the pride and the arrogance of the disciples, even as he holds up the humility of Christ. So Jesus is doing great things and is humble in all sorts of ways. The apostles are unable to do almost anything and are bloated up with pride. So perhaps they felt, for instance, that they ought to be the only ones that were capable of healing. If anybody's going to do it, it should be us. So the other people must be phonies. Again, they, most Christian sectarians tend to believe that, that they, people who are doing other things are doing it ignorantly or maybe doing it dishonestly in some way, shape, or form. So that's one, pride. The other 
is just flat out jealousy. There is a lot more to what you see going on in the, in the disciples' minds at this moment than first meets the eye. When you read all of Mark chapter 9, you can read a little bit earlier on, one of the things that strikes you is that there's an incident right before this where they were unable actually to exercise a demon. They try to do it, but they can't do it. So now you have a guy who's not part of the group, and he's out there exercising demons. So part of the root of this is probably somehow some sort of, of jealousy. So they tell him to stop because he's doing something they're incapable of doing. Well, that's interesting. I don't know how they feel, though. When I was 12 years old, I played in a golf tournament with some kid. I've got his picture here. Now, you may recognize this young man, and you may be going, yeah, sure you did. No, I really did. I played in a golf tournament with this young man. Uh, some people call him Tiger, okay? So we grew up in the same neighborhood, we're the same age. And Tiger, even from the time you may have even seen him on the Johnny Carson show, if you're, you know, 190 years old, you may have seen him on the Johnny Carson show at some point, hitting a golf ball or putting in the ball from a long distance at three years old. He has been something all of his life. Well, we heard that this kid was going to be playing in this tournament that we were already planning to play in. Well, we took it upon ourselves. He was already being covered big time by the media to compare ourselves to him and to make sure that when we got on the driving range before the tournament started that we would be nearby. Now, the three of us, me and my two friends who all grew up pretty much on the same, in the same neighborhood, certainly, but right almost on the same street, we got together and we played golf on a daily basis and we were convinced in our minds that we could be as good as him. Now, we were convinced of that, A, because we're dumb, but the other was because something inside of us said, he's not better than us. Because to admit that he's better than us uh, would have required humility. We weren't feeling it. So the day goes on, and as we golf with this young man, while we're on the driving range, we start kind of snickering and heckling a little bit about his name, starting to literally mouth off to this guy. Okay? Yes, this guy, Tiger Woods. Just kind of making fun of him, the way 12-year-old boys do, right? Well, he comes out, and he lays at least, I want to say it was 12 strokes. He beat the top, the second-place person he beat by 12 strokes that day. Not over the tournament. That day. Okay, so he ran way out in front of everybody. And I remember at the time, us sitting around after the fact, talking about how we could have played as well as he did if we had a course that was built to support our game the way that one was built to support his game. So meaning we gave him no credit. All we did was whine about losing. And we were hoping that he would fail because we failed. I mean, you've probably been in that seat, right? You've, you've wanted to see somebody, that beautiful girl that makes you feel bad about yourself, that guy who seems to be able to achieve everything and get everything he wants or whatever, to watch them fail sometimes feels even more satisfying than doing it yourself. These guys are upset, the apostles. It's not just because of just random sectarianism, just kind of random whatever, it's that this guy is doing something that they're incapable of doing. And Christians still continue to do the same thing. I mean, one of my friends actually still believes that Tiger Woods isn't really that good. 
So he's guilty of delusion, not just jealousy, but that's the way that jealousy plays tricks on us, right? So when you get to a point where maybe you look at the church down the street, you look at the family down the road, you look at down at, at whoever, and you, it's jealousy that fills us to the point that we feel like we've got to draw the lines. Something that will make us feel like we're just as good or better than they are. So we need to make sure, as Jesus talks about, those who are not against us are for us. He says, don't tell them to stop. Anybody who's not fighting against us is on our team. So while we think sometimes that the jersey we're wearing is very exclusive, the message that Jesus gives to them on that day is extremely important. Okay? That God wants a large team and has handed out jerseys to lots of people. And so while we are honored to be a part of that team, we need to understand the honor comes from belonging to Jesus. It's not from being uh, the only one that has that very special jersey. So, for instance, here in America, there are so many Christian churches that it's pretty common for churches just kind of behind each other's back to say something kind of negative or poorly about somebody else who's more successful than they are just simply because they're jealous. Or to say something about other Christians and the way they do things simply because they seem to have a little bit more uh, spiritual power than they have or, or something like that. I think that kind of thing really <laughs> grieves the heart of God, maybe even sickens the heart of God, who looks down and says, look, we, what you guys are involved in, what I've called you to be a part of here in this great story we call Christianity, is so much greater than that. Stop the bickering. Stop putting each other down. Stop drawing the lines. And instead, throw your arms open, line up together, and let's go win this thing. That that's how God sees this. He doesn't see us in that kind of peacetime mentality where everybody has the luxury of drawing lines. He sees this. The Bible sees what we're involved in on a daily basis as a spiritual war. And you can be at war without knowing you're actually at war with somebody. 9-11 and events like that teach us that very harsh reality. But Jesus says in Mark 9:40, those who are not against us are for us. And that is nothing to be afraid of. That is the gospel, sisters and brothers. It's a beautiful thing to know that we've got more brothers and sisters that are ready to fight with us, that are out there doing great things for the kingdom of God than we might give them credit for. We all understand that we can't, I hope, that we can't throw the truth out for the sake of unity. But we should acknowledge that unity itself is a core doctrine of the Bible. It is way up on the list of priorities in the eyes of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says this. Make every effort, okay, you can underline every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. See, there is a spiritual war of sorts. You pick this up in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is full of miracles. There are demons at every turn. There's death everywhere. And Jesus is there very quietly but powerfully healing, resurrecting, casting out, doing these things, right? But there, there is a spiritual warfare kind of motif within the Gospels that you see it, I think, strongest perhaps in the Gospel of Mark. This is... Jesus' point in Mark 9, 39. He says, No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that there are those, you know, outside of my own spiritual heritage that are still part of the Christian family that won't desert Jesus quickly. That's a blessing. So if there are people out there, they're out there doing things, and he says, listen, if they're out there and they're doing good in my name, they're, they're not going to just the next second desert me quickly. That's something to give God praise for. 
Because spiritually speaking, we are in wartime, spiritually speaking. But we often bring a peacetime mentality to it because division is a luxury of the majority in peacetime. I'm going to say it again. Division is a luxury of the majority at peacetime. Many Christians don't really believe that there's an evil presence in this world that's trying to do anything to defeat God's people. Scripture says it over and over and over again. And you'll pick up on it in the Gospel of Mark as you read. We see it in our story today. Right? One guy's healing demons. That are, he's told to stop by the Apostle John. I mean, come on. There's a moment in time at which we have to go, look, if there's anybody out there that is willing to line up on the same side of the football, proverbially speaking to me, and on Jesus' team, then they're welcome, and I'm going to cheer them on no matter what it takes and no matter, um, no matter who it is, because that's something that God would want me to do. Concerns about doctrine, those are valid, and they're crucial to the purity of the church, but we also have to understand that unity itself is a core doctrine of the church, and we got to do everything we can to preserve it, to allow it to flourish, and to take proactive steps to make it happen at every single turn. He doesn't say we have to look exactly alike. He just says, don't stop them. If they're not against us, they're for us. So knock it off. I love it. I love it. When I was in college, I took a summer and spent it in Bangkok, Thailand. Bangkok, Thailand is an amazing place. Millions and millions and millions of fantastic people. Uh, Thailand is more than 90% Buddhist. And within that country, so, I mean, picture everywhere. They have 7-Eleven over there. I mean, they're like us in that respect. They got 7-Elevens. If you walk into a 7-Eleven in Bangkok, there will be a Buddha burning with, with incense burning right there in 7-Eleven. There was virtually no building, no restaurant, no home that you went into that didn't have a Buddha inside. I happened to live for that summer in a student center that was just set off the campus of the largest college in Bangkok. They had more than 300,000 students at that university. Now, I lived in the same room with seven other guys, seven other guys. Now, this is Bangkok, Thailand in the summer. There's no air conditioning to be found anywhere. And it is quite simply, I've lived in Houston, I've lived in Dallas, and I've, I mean, I go to Palm Springs and Scottsdale in the summer and stuff like that because I like the heat. Bangkok is suffocating. It's like Mother Earth grabbing you by the throat and breathing in your face for an entire summer. It's absolutely earth-shatteringly difficult. So here we are, seven other guys in there. And here's what was special about those guys. A, they smiled all the time. B, they were in there because every one of them had been disowned by their parents. Every single one. Emily, my current wife, also shared a room with several girls who had all been disowned by their parents for becoming Christians. On the weekends, so they all lived together in this, in this house. On the weekends, when we would go to church, they would take more than an hour for them to get from that student center to the little local church that they were in. And we would get there and they stayed from eight o'clock in the morning until the sun went down. Usually in the summer, it was late in the evening, seven, eight o'clock at night. They were together there for 12 solid hours, 12 solid hours. So think about that. You got these people who've been kicked out of their houses for following Jesus. They're cooped up in this student center together, sharing rooms and crowded spaces with others who've all been in the same camp. A lot of the church service was devoted to praying for people who were in prison in places like Laos and Vietnam and other places in Burma, where they had been in prison for being Christians. 
they had a visitation plan from their church to get people to go visit these Christians in prison, and they spent all day together. Now, I remember thinking to myself, and look, I was in ministry at the time, so I, I love church. I absolutely love it. But I remember being just awestruck at their willingness to, to stay together and to the point that you would have to pry them apart with darkness at the end of the day in order for them to go home. Their gatherings mattered to them. The reason they mattered was because they understood there aren't many of us out here. And so for those who are like us and are calling on the name of Jesus, this moment matters. Everybody on this team matters. Okay. I had another epiphany. There was a weekend that went by. I got a chance to visit this. Uh, this is the world's largest solid gold Buddha. Okay, The largest. It is 15 feet tall. It's over 13 feet wide, and it weighs over five and a half tons. Solid gold. Now, gold, I don't know, an ounce. I think it's like 1800 bucks an ounce right now. Okay, That's over five and a half tons of gold. Now, I'm not showing you the surrounding area, but... We went as kind of tourists. So we walk in there. This is toward the end of my stay there in Thailand. And I'm used to being in America. I'm used to being church guy, right? Where I'm surrounded by Christians all the time. Now I've spent a summer where there are very few, living with people who really had, it cost them something to be Christians. I end up here toward the end. I gathered all around this area by the hundreds. There were people bowing and worshiping this solid gold Buddha. Now look across the room, and I see a college kid who appears to be American wearing a sweatshirt that says Baptist Student Union on it. Now, I'm not a Baptist. I wasn't raised in that particular heritage. And at the time, because I was a recovering legalist at the moment, I didn't, I didn't consider the Baptist kind of part of the Christian family, at least maybe in a distant way, like the crazy uncle that lives across some other part of the country. I looked across at that moment, and I got this text. I looked across, and it hit me. I go, ah, those who are not against us are for us. And I looked across, and I have never been so glad to see a Baptist in my life. It was so great to see that college kid. And I went over, and I said, hey. And we talked. And the walls came down. And they came down because... When you're in that kind of setting, when you're in wartime and not peacetime, in your mind and in your heart, or for real, it's amazing what it, how little it takes for those walls to come down. Usually, you know, peace is when we have the luxury of building walls, lines, drawing lines. But when you're in war, when you're in serious spiritual difficulty, um, I guess I'd say... Our friends just multiply. The walls come down. God shows us things that we would not get any other way. I wonder why it takes persecution sometimes for us to embrace this truth. That those who are not against us are for us. We have to embrace the values that Jesus lays out for John on this day. That those who are not against us are for us. Those who are not against us are for us. Don't tell them to stop. Don't compete with them. Instead, those who are doing Jesus' ministry in Jesus' name are to be embraced, and at the very least, left alone. <laughs> but I think he's got something more powerful in mind than that. Unity brings hope 
and victory. The stirring of unity in the church is something that makes Satan absolutely shake and tremble with fear because a united church is what he cannot stand against. That's a promise of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And for too long, Satan's gates have kind of stood strong as a divided church kind of knocks politely at the door. This envisions something completely different. This text envisions a different day where everybody who is out there doing what God wants them to do as part of the story of Jesus is together and we're all marching and we're not there to do a little love tap on the door. We're there to storm in to kick it over in the name of Christ and to march victoriously in. I mean, there was a time where Christians, and I, thought, I think and I hope that this is a new day in this regard, when Christians gave heart and soul to keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Are those days gone? I hope not. I hope that this is going to be a time of rebuilding any bridges that got torched in the last era we were in, which was far too peacetime. I think now is a time for us to recognize that these are challenging times and for us to take that mantle. Those who are not against us are for us. And for the church to begin to unify and to solidify and to come back to its original calling, which is to invite people into the great story of Jesus, this powerful servant that Mark teaches us about. Jesus says that we will be recognized as his if we love one another. The Apostle John got it on that day. When he penned his retelling of the life of Jesus, he records this beautiful prayer of Christ. This is from Jesus in John chapter 17. So the same one who said he told them to knock it off because they weren't part of the clique records this prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. You can underline that. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Listen to this moment between God and and Jesus in the prayer and in the intimacy. And he's saying, God, I want them to be, this is his dying prayer, one as I and you are one. So as we take a look at Mark 9 and we continue this week reading through the gospel of Mark, pay attention to these things and especially how important it is to God that we be unified, that we may be unified. If the divinity of Christ, the power of the Spirit, the existence of God is at issue, then maybe the situation becomes a little bit different because unity has to abide in truth. But Jesus would want us to know that unity itself is at the very heart of right doctrine. Unity and discipleship are married and they cannot be divorced. So if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to do it with others. And you're going to do it with the other people that have called on the name of Jesus and have bought into what he is here to do in this world. It begins, eternity starts now. So where do we begin? We begin by recommitting ourselves to each other, by committing to unity with each other and glorifying Jesus in ministry together on the issues of the day that are going on right now that are setting up walls and dividing people all across the spectrum. We reject division in all of its forms. 
We seek the will of God in each situation, but we're committed to the cause of Christ above everything else and to one another as part of the body of Christ. And then, together as one, we storm the gates of hell. They can't prevail against us. They can't prevail against us. So right now, we're going to gather around the Lord's table, and I want you to take this as a unity meal today. So even though we're in our homes or we're in our places of business or wherever you're joining us online, I want you to sense that you're being connected all over, literally, the globe this morning as you take the Lord's Supper. There are people in Dallas and in New York City and in other countries all over the world that are going to be joining you in this right now at this moment. So as you do, let's let these words of Jesus echo in our hearts as we take the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, for the gift of being part of your cause in this world, we give you thanks. Today, Father, we rejoice that those who are not against us are for us. And so, Father, for places that we've built walls, would you please tear them down? Any place we've torched a bridge to other brothers and sisters or other churches or other people who are out doing what you want them to do, Father, may you rebuild those and may we be part of it. Father, now as we take the bread and the cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus, the powerful servant, we ask, Father, that you connect us through the blood of Christ, through this moment, through this meal, that we can sense palpably the unity that we have only through the power of Jesus, the powerful servant, our Lord and Savior, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.